It must be Thursday. Welcome to Learning Unwrapped, the podcast about your most important life skill, learning. If you like going fast and high, if you like floating, then you'll love today's guest and want to be him. If you prefer your feet planted firmly on the ground, then you'll still be intrigued by all he has to say, but perhaps you'll pass on the opportunity to become an astronaut. From 1996 to 2012, my guest was an astronaut based at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. He served as mission specialist on a 12-day mission aboard the Space Shuttle Endeavor. And on his second space flight, he served as a flight engineer for four months aboard the International Space Station as a member of the Expedition 16 crew. Currently, he is the chief of the Integrated Strategic Products Information and Resources Enterprise, INSPIRE, office at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Please welcome Dan Tani. Great. Thank you so much, Nancy. It's, it's wonderful to be uh, on this podcast. Thanks, Dan. It is great to speak with you. I know we you were on my show last year and you were loved by everyone who watched and, and everybody wanted to hear more from the astronaut. So I'm giving them more. Um, let's talk first about, you know, life after uh, being an astronaut. After you retired, you joined the faculty of the American School in Japan. So my question is, how is teaching high school like spaceflight? So how does it compare with spaceflight? It's much scarier uh, than spaceflight. Uh, I love that. Not, teaching you know, is scarier than well, spaceflight. Yeah, I say that I was an astronaut for 16 years, and then I wanted to do something more daring, more more life-threatening, more more challenging. And uh, standing up in front of, I taught both middle school and high school, and uh, I'll tell you, standing up in front of 25 uh, or 30 16-year-olds or 15-year-olds, having to fill 80 minutes, it wasn't terrifying, but the responsibility I felt was immense. And you have to be, I know I'm talking to a lot of teachers, so I know that everybody resonates with this and they're, they're saying, duh, but the fact that I have to provide content for that amount of time, that I'm responsible for them for that amount of time. And then four minutes later, boop, another set of 20 kids uh, shows up and I have to do the whole thing again. It was, I say the hardest job I've ever had. Uh, no kidding. I thought about it 24 seven. Uh, I never felt like I had an off moment. But honestly, the most rewarding day-to-day -day job uh, I've ever had. I love how you summed it up. And it's great to hear the perspective of someone who was not a teacher who came into teaching. I was in teaching. Then I went into the world of computer science and came back. And I remember as a teacher, I would always be exhausted at the end of the day. Yeah. When I went into the business world where I worked longer hours, got home much later, yeah. I could be out partying all night and, you know, <laughs> two hours sleep and get back to work. When I came back to teaching, I went back to being exhausted again, but it gave me pause and it made me think, and it's something you said, that teachers are responsible for lives. Yeah. And that, that is emotionally um, challenging, but at the same time, when you do see that you make a difference, it is right. the most rewarding career yeah. on earth, I happen to think. And perhaps yeah. in space, too. Yeah. yeah. And so, right, being, being an astronaut is a fantastic job. Tons of responsibility, tons of, of risk and, 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 and reward. 
but I, I really think about the teaching chapter of my life as, as uh, life diverting in terms of attitude and in terms of insight and in terms of uh, what I think about the educational system. So it was uh, just a fantastic experience for me. Well, thanks for serving in that capacity. So as high school students then think about careers, who should consider becoming an astronaut? What would you say are a few characteristics of a person who would love spaceflight? The number one characteristic we look for is the ability to work in a team. And we can find a lot of smart people. We can find a lot of accomplished people. But the real divider there is who can work together as a team, who understands leadership and followership well enough so that when it's, when it's required, somebody uh, takes the baton and, and is sort of the, the manager of the group at that point. And then when it's appropriate, passes the baton to somebody else and lets uh, somebody else do it, understands differences in attitudes and opinions and respects that instead of, instead of avoids it. So this whole teamwork aspect is really, really important because we put you know, a handful of people in a very small space for a long time, and we put them in a really dangerous situation, and that team has to work together really well. And it's not just the people in the spacecraft. There are people at Mission Control on the ground, and there are families in their homes. All those relationships have got to be managed well and be the most efficient they can. So it's maybe a little counterintuitive, but uh, astronauts, I would say, of course, have to do well in school, have to be accomplished in, in an academic sense, and probably in some sort of business sense or some sort of professional sense. But the real divider, the real, the real thing that separates uh, the astronauts right now are these, I'm not even going to say soft skills. These are critical uh, relationship skills. They know, know when it's appropriate to be funny and a little disrespectful maybe, but they understand, of course, when it's uh, not appropriate to be that way and to do the best for the team. So if if I'm talking to a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old or 15-year-old, they're probably not going to be eligible to become an astronaut for 20 years or so. I don't know what the program is going to be like in 20 years. I don't know what the needs of the space programs are going to be in 20, 30, 40 years. And the things that we think are required to be an astronaut now may not be. I know that the Europeans are hiring astronauts right now. They're, they're looking for the next set of astronauts. And I think, from what I've read, they're looking for the first people that don't have all the physical capabilities that the normal astronaut criteria have. So I think they're looking for, they had a name for it, para-astronauts, para uh, mm. or they're considering para-astronauts. And so we thought, we had this idea that astronauts have to be able to run marathons or have to, you know, be super fit or be... Per, per, I'll say perfect, but specimens, right, you know, right. but maybe that's not true. Maybe the more important thing is up here, right? Between your ears and, or, or your skill set, or, and so I'm a little optimistic that the field that we choose from for astronauts is going to grow as we get more familiar with sending people into space. And certainly NASA has been uh, forward in making sure that we look this that that the look of the astronaut corps uh, looks like the nation uh, in terms of ethnicity and gender and all that and even now even now orientation and so I think that's fantastic but mm. uh, 
but now maybe it be maybe it will expand even into interests. Maybe there is will be needs for French literature specialists up in space or or mechanics or all sorts of vocations or interests sure, or sure. expertise. So that's my hope. That's that's fascinating. And I love that you brought up the team aspect because you know, when uh, I was teaching in the 70s, the idea was you learned all of these core core academics. Uh-huh. And then, as you said, skills like getting along with others, respecting opinions, being able to reach consensus, those are all considered soft skills. Yeah, right. And now those really are the hard skills. That That is what employers are looking for. Because if you don't know all of your math algorithms, you can look them up. But so much right. is at your fingertips through through your phone because right. of the internet. Right. Uh, but you can't look up the soft skills. You can't right. you can't look up active listening. You have to practice right. it. And my concern is that with the pandemic, first of all, when students were learning from home, it became much more individualized. But even coming back to schools with social distancing, I see far more teachers lecturing from the front of the room to individual students because they can't necessarily figure out the social distancing aspect of working in teams. So messaging for schools, you've got to figure out a way to get back to students working in teams and collaborating. Yeah. And, you know, I I remember in elementary school, high school, having to do team assignments. And I, just like my children now, big eye roll, like, oh God, I got to work with a bunch of, you know, people that, you know, I barely know. But it is so valuable. And the same with decision making, actually. I think we assume people know how to make a decision. And I think we should start teaching children. These are decisions. And here's what you should think about when you get to that fork in the road and have to decide one way or another and be conscientious that you're making decisions. So So message um, to policymakers, we have got to put these quote unquote soft skills into the curriculum because right now the curricular standards are very much about content, academic content and application of content, but not necessarily focusing on, yeah, what is what is becoming increasingly important. I think the term soft skills does a disservice and I think it, it does. reduces it as an importance. And I think most accomplished people understand it as very important. And maybe there's a, so maybe it's a marketing issue maybe we need to find a better that's a good one we'll do a marketing campaign for the hard skills there we Uh, go i i loved that in in one of the interviews i heard you speaking about becoming an astronaut and you said as a kid you liked going fast and high and you liked fixing things and then when asked about what you liked about space flight your answer was i liked floating so I think those are probably good characteristics too, if, if, if you like going if you like fast and high and floating, right? <laughs> well, if you like to explore, if you like new hmm. things, if you like, if you like going someplace that you've never been before and it's a little uncomfortable, if you embrace that discomfort of this is really interesting instead of this is really scary. I've, I've written about becoming uh, problem finders, innovators, and entrepreneurs in one of my books. It's not what you teach, but how. And mm-hmm. In there, and I present keynote speeches on the topic, et cetera. And I thought it was interesting that whenever I ask a group of students, middle and high school students, if you could take, you know, we talk about Mars exploration right now and Mars colonization. Mm-hmm. If you could take a one-way flight 
to Mars to go and colonize it and live there, how many of you would go? Most of the hands in the room go up. Yeah. When I ask right. that same question of teachers, none of the hands in the room <laughs> go up. Right. So, That's right. So our message perhaps to young people is if you've got that desire to explore and that willingness to take that risk and go into the unknown, consider being an astronaut because once you get a little bit older and set in your ways, you're not going to want to have to take your feet off. <laughs> you're going to lose that. Yeah. <laughs> now, Dan, your spaceflight preparation included extensive training at the cosmonaut training facility in Star City, Russia, and mm -hmm. then hiking and sea kayaking with the National Outdoor Leadership School, mm -hmm. winter and sea survival courses, mm -hmm. high performance jet flying, and then serving as a member of the NEMO 2, and that's N-E-E-M-O, not to be confused with the fish, mm -hmm. where you worked and lived underwater for eight days. Right. So, wow, that's a lot of different aspects of training for an astronaut. Why was all of that so critical to you becoming an astronaut? Well, so, okay, that, those are, and you're making me miss all those things. They are all exciting and fun. And uh, some are required because of the program. So I went to Russia a, a lot. I spent probably a, a total of a year in Russia because at that time, uh, some of us were flying to the space station on the Russian Soyuz spacecraft and rocket. So we had to learn how that worked. But at that time, even if we got to this, the space station some other way, our emergency ride home was via the Soyuz. So we all had to understand how the Soyuz worked. And to, it's a very complicated machine, takes a lot of training. They teach it in Russia. So we spent a lot of time in Russia learning how the Soyuz works and also how the Russian portions of the space station work. And so just uh, a, a question in here, and I don't mean to become too geopolitical, mm -hmm. but right now, US-Russia relations aren't that good. Are yep. we still connected with them in the space program? I would say that the space program, the International Space Station, has been an unbreakable link in the relationship between nations. In fact, that's awesome. Back when the space station was envisioned, it was an American space station uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia was interested in joining. So we envisioned the space, International Space Station as one of the critical links. Uh, joining the countries. And it has been a fantastic and unbreakable link uh, until through now. If that's affected, even through, even when there are some real issues where there were some diplomatic tensions, uh, we were still, astronauts were still going to Russia, cosmonauts were still going to Houston. We were still working together, keeping the space station uh, staffed and, and working. And, and it, that continues today. I worry about that, as you point out, because it's, uh, it's starting to heat up. But uh, to me, that will be an awful day when it really affects the day-to-day -day operation or preparation for space station. So, so well, this goes back to the importance of those soft skills of yeah, learning right. to compromise, understand, discuss, understand negotiate, understand right. one another. Yeah. All right. So move on to the um, hiking and sea yeah. kayaking. Sea kayaking. So, uh, and I'll talk. I'll also say the survival winter and uh, sea survival. Those you need that because there are scenarios where you land in the ocean, either out of an airplane or out of space, and you have to understand all your equipment. So you have to go do these training events. You have to understand what it's the uh, all the equipment does and how it works. And so, okay, now when I joined, we were launching on the space shuttle and going up for a couple of weeks and coming home, and then 
actually right when I joined, we started building the space station. And so the mission for astronauts changed sort of a couple years after I got there. And the mission used to be get ready, do a couple weeks worth of intensive stuff. You come home, you get in line for the next mission. Then it became, now we're going to go live on the International Space Station. We're going to do that for months at a time, uh, six months. We've got a guy up there that's going to spend a whole year uh, up in, on the space station. And then we're going to be working with Russians every day. And so there are more different skill set that's going to be required there. And this is exactly what we're talking about previously, the skill set of getting along with people, understanding that cultural and opinion differences aren't divisors there. They should be joiners. They should be, they should make our team tighter. And so we thought, well, it's valuable to create training environments that sort of simulate that. And so we think about using very difficult physical situations, work as a team and get through those difficult physical situations and learn about yourself. Where's your breaking point? What are your weaknesses? And, and then observing your team. How is your team doing? So we do, we utilize what's called the National Laboratory Leadership School, Knowles, which is a fantastic organization up in Wyoming. And they take generally adolescents and young adults on weeks long, very primitive camping trips, kayaking in Patagonia or uh, mountain climbing, very difficult stuff. And they learn leadership and teamwork skills there. So we, we've asked them to tailor a pro, couple programs to the astronauts and they shorten it down to you know, about two weeks. And we do sea kayaking where it's cold and you're, it's, uh, it, it's treacherous, um, or we went hiking, canyon hiking in uh, Utah, fantastic. But again, 90 degrees during the day, 30 degrees at night, it's uncomfortable, it's, you're carrying a 60 pound pack. All those stressors uh, simulate the stress of being in space and being in a confined area. And it's just a great way to practice and also screen for the, the, the skill set of, uh, that we now look for in long duration astronauts. And these are the same skills that we're gonna need when we send people to Mars or further beyond where we're gonna ask people to be a small functional group in, in very difficult circumstances. So that's that, that was the uh, sea kayaking, the hiking uh, underwater, we use a, we use an underwater laboratory and we go dive 60 feet under, we live in this laboratory for, uh, uh, I, I was there for eight days, they've been there for uh, two, three weeks. And when you're down there, because of the pressure down there, uh, you can't just come to the surface, otherwise uh, the gases in your body will come out, like if you know the bends when you scuba dive. So you're stuck, and so you have this mentality of I'm stuck at the bottom of the ocean uh, until until we do a specific procedure to slowly get to the surface. These are all training events to both learn and to learn about ourselves and learn about how teams uh, work together in stressful situations. Uh, now, you had recently posted on LinkedIn a call for student interns to work at NASA, where right. students can apply at intern.nasa.gov. Tell mm -hmm. us more. Sure. So my current position at uh, NASA Goddard Goddard is one of the sites, uh, one of the locations of NASA in Maryland, is one of the things in my portfolio. I do outreach. I do, I'm trying to make partnerships to community and to industry and to academia, to tell our story about what we do specifically in, in our area, which is space communications and navigation. 
but one of the things in my portfolio is our internship program. And so we have NASA as a whole gets hundreds of summer interns and we do spring and fall also. But our division, uh, we have a large group. We have about 50 interns over the summer and uh, we, you know, we give them meaningful work. We expect them to, uh, we, we expect it to be a mutually beneficial uh, arrangement where we're looking for sharp students and uh, that can contribute. And we have uh, researchers and engineers that have needs that can be split up into a small 10 week or so session. And we establish this relationship with these students. And uh, I have to be honest, the, the inside story is if you wanna work at NASA, probably the best way to get a permanent job at NASA is through the internship program. So if you have students that have this, have dreams of working for NASA, which is fantastic, don't wait until you graduate, I would say, to start thinking about it. Look at the internship program. Uh, ours, we think is a fantastic program. We, we not only give them work, but we mentor them in terms of building their resume, building those interpersonal skills, how to go to a meeting, you know, how to make an agenda, how to be a functional business person. Not only do we have a program, but NASA-wide has uh, many opportunities. So location-wise, everything from California uh, to New York City, uh, down to Houston, we have a lot of centers, we have a lot of opportunities. So I would encourage anybody who has dreams of working for NASA to think about the internship program. And I wanna say that NASA, when you think NASA internship, you think engineer, physicist, chemist, biologist, you think that thing, I wanna to try to dispel that image of what a NASA intern is. NASA is a full organization that does spaceflight, but to do that, we need a good legal team, we need a good marketing team, we need a fantastic graphics and animation team, we need the whole wide variety of, of expertise that any business needs. And so if you're a graphic designer and you're thinking, no, I, there's no way I could work for NASA, I'll tell you what, we have some great, some of the best graphic designers on our team and we need more, okay? If you're a writer, why would NASA need a writer? Well, if you see, see the press releases, if you see the features on the website, those are all professionally written. We need writers to do that. So I wanna cast my net wide. I wanna say, we need the best of everybody at NASA. And so hopefully you don't, you're not put off. I don't want to put people off uh, NASA thinking you've got to be a nerd. Uh, we've got good nerds. Uh, I, I tr trust me. Uh, we've but got good nerds. We that could do. be a tagline for NASA. <laughs> <laughs> we do. And, uh, but we need the best of all fields. So uh, fashion designers, you know, we need, we're going to, we're improving spacesuits, sure. right? Sure. So we need fashion designers. We need all sorts of expertise. So that's what I want to make sure the message gets out. Whatever your interest, if you're good at it, take a look at NASA. I bet we could use you. A geopolitical perspective, again, when it comes to governments and international relations, that change is possible. Because one of the cornerstones of your story is that your parents were distrusted by the government, and I'll let you go into that more, but a generation later embraces you for the space travel program. Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. I, you know, I take great pride in my, the story of my family. I'm Japanese American. I'm the third generation Japanese American, which means that my grandparents emigrated from Japan uh, to California, then raised their families uh, before they met. And so my, both of my parents are born in California, U.S. citizens. Uh, they were married. And uh, shortly after they were married, 
Pearl Harbor happened, was attacked, and all of a sudden we were at war with Japan. At that time, I would say a knee-jerk reaction was that the government uh, distrusted anybody with Japanese ancestry because it was it was not only thought, it was said outright that the Japanese people are just different than Americans. Their, their devotion to the emperor is something we, we Americans, don't understand. And uh, we just can't trust it because, um, I mean, my goodness, the Japanese people put people in airplanes and, and, and crash them into boats as kamikaze. And that was like, well, this, this is a level of devotion that we just don't understand. So decision was made to take everybody of Japanese ancestry, which is unbelievable, and remove them from their homes. And we're going to basically, we are going to lock them up in camps inland. And so my family and every other Japanese American family, 130,000 people were relocated out of their homes, out of their businesses. And my family went to a place called Topaz in Utah. Uh, in that process, all of their cameras, radios were confiscated. They were not trusted with that, uh, with those devices. And my oldest brother uh, was five weeks at that time. So imagine my parents with a five-week-old baby having to go. Actually, they lived in, had to were forced to live in horse stables for um, uh, several months, and then relocated to these makeshift buildings uh, in the middle of the desert. So that's awful. And uh, Amer uh, the American government has acknowledged that that's awful. And one of the points of pride is that just one generation later, the same government that distrusted my parents gave me the honor of flying in space, representing the uh, United States of America mm. and the world. And uh, the irony is that that same government spends a lot of money or spent a lot of money teaching me how to use cameras and radios, uh, the very things that my parents were distrusted uh, to own. So I find it, it's a big point of pride, both in my family and my Japanese American community, but also my government to resolve, get over that very black mark in our, in our history. And I think as Japanese Americans, it's our responsibility to remind everybody of that session, that, that the experience that, that the nation went through, what is that, 70 years ago, because we're starting to see it now. We're starting to see uh, people distrusting people just because of where they came, come from, just because of uh, what they believe. And it's uh, we attribute it to believe that they are just different. You know what? Those people are just different. Mm -hmm. They believe in different things. And we just can't understand. We should hear that narrative. And we yeah. should be reminded, we've been here before, and we've made that mistake before. And uh, we as Japanese Americans, I would say, enjoy being considered mainstream America now, uh, even after that terrible period we went through. And we want to make sure that everybody that eligible enjoys the same respect of that the mainstream status. And we in America understand that, and, and we should enjoy the differences of all of us, uh, all the Americans that are around us. Thank you, Dan. That's a great message and I think a, a great message to take to uh, adults as well as kids that we need to embrace diversity as yeah. opposed to distrusting people because they share a different belief or come from a different place etc right I love that right. thank you for that now you were a guest on my show last year uh, if if any of our listeners would like to see that the topic was learning from space learning in space 
And you can go to nancysula.com and just simply scroll down to see all of last year's episodes, which were internet TV shows. We've now switched to a podcast to make it much more accessible to everyone. So you can you can hear more about Dan Tani uh, from that. But I have one last question. Well, actually, I have two. But here's my mm-hmm. next to the last question. I know, Dan, that you are an avid golfer. Have you ever played golf in space? And what have you learned from and in space that improved your golf game? Uh, let's see. So I did. I brought a golf ball up to space uh, from my, one of my favorite golf courses. And so I I, I pulled it out and, and uh, it floats right in front of you. So it doesn't sit in one place. And so I had a little stick and I tried to hit it and have, have fun with it. It's hard. So, uh, but um, what did I learn from? Uh, so I guess what I learned is uh, when I am at almost any golf course or some of my favorite golf courses uh, in Ireland, which is where I, uh, I really enjoy playing golf and I hit it poorly and I'm aggravated. Uh, what I take is, wow, am I lucky to be here? Uh, in this beautiful country and this beautiful golf course, uh, hopefully in the not too miserable weather. And spaceflight in general has given me good perspective on what's important and what we should worry about. And and so uh, it's made me a much happier golfer because uh, even if I'm not golfing well, I'm doing something that I really love to do. And it's really being the doing the walk and being out in the open field, the golf course, with friends generally is you just can't beat it. And the score is so unimportant. Uh, it's the, it's the experience uh, that you're having. That's the most important thing. And and you're still making things fly high and fast. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> when, when I'm having a good not, day. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully not floating into the sand. <laughs> All right, let's unwrap the learning. What do you want everyone in the world to know about the importance of the space program? Well, that's a very good question. I would say that we as a nation, we as a world, set aside some resources and some time to learn. And one of the places we don't know much about and we need to we want to learn more about is space. There's just a lot of it. We don't have a lot of experience in it. And as teachers, I would hope, and educators, I, I would hope that uh, we understand that learning is integral to us as people and as societies. And a lot of people can point to the space program and go, why do we need to put a rover on Mars? What do we, what do we care what Mars was made of? What, what do we care uh, or why should we even care about how old the solar system is or how old the universe is? All these big questions. Why are we spending money on that? when we can use that money to do other things. Well, I think of it like a family budget. Even if it's difficult times, it's good to go to the bookstore and browse and buy a book and learn about something different. It's good to allocate some time and some resources to learning. And that's what we do in the space program. We're we're learning about things and just the process of learning is important and it helps us grow as a society and as a people. Well, there you have it. Dan Tani, a retired astronaut extraordinaire. And I always love getting to interview you, Dan. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for your time, Nancy. I really enjoyed it. All right. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. 
Well, that's a wrap. I'm glad you could join me. I hope you'll subscribe, like, and share this podcast and help me spread the word about the power of learning. Till next time.